0: You are listening to WTUZ Radio Podcast. Welcome to WTUZ Radio Podcast. I am your host Rhonda, and today's topic is very, very interesting. And shout out to the sis that sent me this information. Uh, She would like to remain anonymous. Uh, Very, very interesting topic. I had never heard of this before. Uh, So historians say this is a theory. So I don't know for sure. I dug up a couple things. We're going to run through it. And we're gonna see uh, how it rolls from there. But I did wanna bring this to the family's attention because as we dig deeper into the connections on heritage, so either our personal heritage journey that we are taking as well as the heritage journey on these dynasties, empires, um, and rulers, we're seeing a lot of interconnections. So this particular podcast is about the very first queen of Scotland being an Egyptian, okay? So it sparked my interest because as we are going through the uh, series, the Black Nobility and... The black nobility bloodlines and rulers. We have uh, traced back MacAlpin, also known as MacAlpine, as the first leader of Scotland and England, and his bloodline tying back to Africa. So, of course, when I saw this information, it sparked my interest as well. So we're going to start out with this article from the website The Scotsman, and it's saying the Pharaoh's daughter, who was the mother of all Scots. Walter Bower wrote his compendium of Scottish history, Scotronicon, in the fourteen forties. The sweeping Latin text aimed to set down the history of the Scottish people from the earliest times and by so doing to show what race of people we were. He references Chronicle from ancient texts and oral history. What he recorded was astonishing. According to Bauer, the Scottish people were not in an amalgam of pits. Scots and other European people, but were, in fact, Egyptians who could trace their ancestry directly back to the pharaoh's daughter and her husband, a Greek king. The queen's name was Skoda, from where comes the name Scotland. The Greek king was Gathiloas, hence Gaelic. And their son was known as Hiber, which gives us Hibernia. All right, so all of you Scots, all of you Scots, don't know if you've heard this myth, because at this point they're calling it a myth before. So let's continue. Nor was, am I missing something? Okay, I guess not. Nor was Bower the first to propose such exalted exalted lineage for the Scots. The story goes back further and was even included in the Declaration of Abroth. This seminal document written in 1320 by the barons and noblemen of Scotland was a letter imploring the Pope to intervene on their behalf during the Wars of Independence. The text refers to the ancients who journeyed through greater Scathia and the pillars of Hercules to their home in the West, where they still live today. According to to tradition, this royal family was expelled from Egypt during a time of great uprising. They sailed West, settling initially in Spain, before traveling to Ireland and then on to the west coast of Scotland. The same race of people eventually battled and triumphed over the pits to become the Scots, the people who united this country. Okay, so as we were going through uh, the bloodlines of the Black nobility um we discovered through um McAlpine. The, the original name is McAlpine, how they integrated with the pits. Okay, so I had no choice but to assume the pits were um indigenous to the land or they came to the land earlier then McAlpine's crew and, uh, settled. Okay. But let, let's continue. So this, this is interesting that they're saying the same race of people eventually battled and triumphed over the pits to become the Scots, the people who united this country. Few historians have taken the story to be anything more than a verbose uh, bit of Middle Middle Ages origin story spinning created by a nation who needed to prove that they were of ancient stock. Most political entities in medieval times try and trace their origin race back into biblical times, says Steve Boardman lecturer in Scottish history at Edinburgh University. It was a way of asserting the natural existence of the kingdom of the Scots. But now a new book, and this is what we're going to get into, we're going to get into this book. Uh, um, Skoda, Egyptian Queen of the Scots by Ralph Ellis, claims to prove that this origin myth was no made-up story, but the actual recording of an Egyptian exodus that that did indeed conclude in Scotland. In tracing the sources that could have influenced the Declaration of Bower's Chronicon, he finds that the main British reference was likely to be the 18th century historian Nynia's But it is in tracing Nennius' sources that Ellis thinks he found the answers. He believes that the originator of the Skoda Gathios story was an ancient text, The History of Egypt, written in 300 BC by an Egypt, oh, Egypto Greek historian called Mantheo. Ellis writes, the possibility that Mantheo was the uh, original author of Skoda and Gathilos story is interesting because it gives the whole story much greater credence. Having traced the original source, which was, if not contemporary, at least reasonably informed, Ellis believes that we can begin to put flesh on bones of the story. Okay, so I'm not going to go into the rest of this because we can actually get into the book. Um, I just wanted to give you the highlights from this article as an introduction. So this is from the website, The Scotsman, the Pharaoh's daughter, who was the mother of all Scots. So, okay. So this is the title of the book, Skoda, Egyptian Queen of the Scots by Ralph Ellis. All right, so let me get to my highlights. Uh, because I had to jump around in here. Oh, wait a minute. Before I do that, I do want to read y'all the opening. Okay, I do want to at least do that. Do do da. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, is this the one what I wanted? All right, the Scottish Chronicles. Long, long ago, in a faraway land, it is recorded that a prince and a princess were enthroned among the great pomp and ceremony as king and queen of their people, but fate was not looking kindly upon them or the assembled throng of courtiers and officials who supported them because many of these people would shortly be forced to flee their homes in search of less turbulent lands beyond the great sea. The political turmoil that surrounded this marriage and its theological implications took nearly four years to fester and ulcerate. Finally, there was a popular uprising of some kind that forced the abdication of the king and queen But the revolution was peaceful enough that they were allowed to depart with the majority of their administration and followers. Hundreds of people were forced to take to the sea in small, precarious vessels and boldly set off towards the setting sun and great uncertainty. This was an era in which many of these waters were completely unchartered, but since returning to their homes would mean instant death. They sailed on regardless of the dangers. Eventually, after many trials and tribulations, the royal couple and their small flotilla discovered a new land which seemed to hold great promise. Like the Pilgrim Fathers in a much later age, these I'm just going to say immigrants uh, set about creating a new nation, a new Jerusalem far away from the political and religious strife of their former homeland in Egypt. The prince and princess in the Scottish chronicles were called Gaethelos and Skoda, and it is from these appellations that the Gaelic and Scottish people are reputed to have been named. And while this harmony in terminology may seem a little convenient, and possibly even contrive, it should be pointed out that this connection was not derived from modern age romanticism, nor was it from a Victorian fairy tale. In fact, the Chronicle of Gaethlios and Scotia was recorded in the instructions on the pleading of Baldred Bessette two documents drawn up by the Scottish nobles and intended for submission to the papal court to determine the great antiquity of the Scottish people. A small element of this history was then appended to the more famous Declaration of Arbroath, a document that was drawn up on the 6th of April, 1320 A.D., Possibly by Abbot Bernard de Linton, this famous document, which is comparable in many aspects to the American Declaration of Independence, was likewise signed by numerous earls, barons of Scotland, and then sent on its long journey to Pope John the Twenty-Second. The declaration was made in the wake of Robert the Bruce, Bruce's victory at burn in 1314, and like the later American document, is sought to legitimize Scotland's independence from England. All right, so um, I'm just going to, cause I have to, uh, you know, skip around, fam. All right, so as many as half a dozen different. Half a dozen different sources are cited in book one of the Scotta Chronicon, which all follow a similar storyline about the origins and faith of the royal couple, Gaithilos and Skoda. So yes, incredible as it may seem, it has been seriously suggested by the ancient chronicles that both Ireland and Scotland were first settled by the descendants of an Egyptian pharaoh, his queen, and their various courtiers and followers. The author has already written four books on revisionary Egyptology and has already come to the conclusion that much of the biblical history and many of the biblical characters were actually based upon Egyptian history and personality. All right, so those of you that uh, have been rolling with me for quite some time, you know that um, we got heavily into the Sumerian text, which predates the Bible, so which, which predates the Egyptian dynasty, the Bible is based on the Sumerian text. So yes, they are correct that even Egyptian history is based on um, the Bible, okay? So Jesus being Horus, and you could just go down the list, okay? So in agreement with them on that. All right. Oops, let me go back. All right. But since the royal families of Europe were founded by the descendants of biblical families and bloodlines, it seems entirely plausible that European history was linked to the Egyptian history in some respects. So I totally agree with this. And that's what fascinated me about this was the fact that Uh, From the religion to the way the government is structured, the way societies are set up, the way their politics are set up, are all linked back to these ancient civilizations described in the Sumerian text, which is the oldest, Uh, Egyptian text and the Bible, all of that is carried forward, all of those particular systems are carried forward in the European system, right? Which ultimately went around the world, okay? So I'm in agreement with that, okay? Plus the fact that we have um, other things To back that up at a minimum, we know that the early uh, European rulers of England and Scotland were uh, out of Africa. Okay, so this is the Scotter Chronicon. Uh, Just to give you just a little bit of insight. Of uh what this really is, in case you want to do some research outside of this. Scott a Chronicon is a vast work set out in 16 books. It was nominally written by Walter Bauer and Augustinian abbot of Enchiclom Inch- Monastery in about 1430. Although it was largely his work, he drew extensively on John of Fordham's earlier chronicles of 1360 and quoted extensively from a host of other vulnerable, uh, venerable historians and chroniclers, as was mentioned in the introduction on this vast work, only book one, which y'all, I can't find book one. Okay. uh, I'll try to do a little bit more digging But I couldn't find book one. I found a bunch of these other volumes, but I couldn't find book one. Only book one deals with the saga of Gathulus and Skoda. And so the entire chronicle of their and their descendants' exploits are set out in about 80 or so pages. Okay, so I'm going to keep looking for this book one. And if I find it, I will most certainly do a follow-up on it, because I'm interesting. I like to go directly to the source to see what's up. All right, so the interesting part about the story, which has generated so much heated debate and speculation, is that the founding royal couple of both Ireland and Scotland were a Greek prince and an Egyptian princess who became king and queen of Egypt for a short while. Such fantastic accounts are thought to be the stuff of legends, not historical reality, and so much of the earlier sections of Chronicon have been co-signed to a fantasy or mythology shelf. All right, so Donald Watts, the translator of Chronicon, summed up the story in this fashion. The story begins with the mythical voyage of Skoda, the pharaoh's daughter, from Egypt the land that her sons discovered in the western ocean was named after her Scotland Okay so um I mean is it Europe named after Europa although uh from a cos cosmological perspective or astrology perspective, I think Europa is one of the moons of Jupiter, which is still symbolic. Uh, we're not going to get into that because that's the esoteric side of it. Um, but supposedly, the name Europa is named after a uh, melanated queen as well. So I, I just find this interesting all the way around. Okay, um, uh, let's see. Let me go to 18. All right, let me just make sure I'm not missing anything. Yeah, okay. All right. The story itself centers on the royal couple called Gath- Gathlios and Skoda, and it is from the two, and from these two, the individuals that Gaelic and Scott people are said to be known Gathlios is said to have been a wayward Greek prince who had a dispute with either his father or brother and so left Greece to look for new opportunities. Being a precocious and fortunate individual, he is supposed to have arrived in in Egypt and egratiated himself with the royal family there. Against all the known customs of Egypt, he is said to have married the daughter of the pharaoh with a view to inherit the throne of Egypt. However, his successful bid for the throne was not welcomed by the Egyptian proliferate, and so he and his wife, Princess Skoda, were expelled from Egypt and embarked upon the epic voyage across the Mediterranean. Okay. Okay. Um the first of these islands was discovered relatively quickly and may have been Malo Malorca uh, Malorica whatever that is yeah Finally after four generations or so another island home was discovered and this is more positively identified as being Ireland hmm. It is recorded that both the son and great-great-grandson of Gaethlius were called Hyber. And it is from this name that the countries of Iberia, Spain, and Hibernia, Scotland, are said to have been named. So, child. That kind of tripped me out, too. Now, again... We don't know this for sure. This is all just theory and the purpose of this book, uh, Skoda, Egyptian Queen of the Scots, is to just kind of give more insight and he's trying to prove that the story is true. Many of the, by now, much larger populations of Brigantia then emigrated to Ireland, which was called Scotia after the name of the people's founding queen. That Ireland was originally called Scotia before the 3rd century AD is fairly well known. All right, um, you Scots, come on in and, and drop some, some more insight on this. <laughs> this is interesting. Among others, Claudian... Orosus, uh, Marianus, Scotus, Isidori and Bede all mentioned that Ireland was called Scotia. Surely very much for Scotland and Ireland are one and the same. Therefore ye cometh of some writers that Ireland is called Scotia major. Mm. And that which now is named Scotland is called Scotia Minor. And Interesting. Okay, uh, you Europeans, uh, Jude, uh, the Scots, and uh, my Ireland folks, come on now, give us some insight. Have y'all heard of any of this? The name Scoda, like the Pyrenees, parad- parallel name hyper obviously had a habit of moving on to new lands as the people moved to new pastures and so it is not so surprising that when the scots settled in canada they called their new homeland child let me go on and take a sip of my seltzer water on this what they call it Nova Scotia or New Scotia Child. So now let's just read again what they say it used to be called that Ireland is called scotia major and that which is now is named Scotland is called scotia minor and so what was part of Canada <clears throat> you know That's really the Americas. What was that renamed when they came over here? Nova Scotia or New Skoda? I mean, these folks, they love to name stuff after their homelands and their family names. Uh, You remember, uh, New York, which is still named after York over in England, but remember it was New Amsterdam first, okay, I'm talking about when the Europeans came over, so child, so let me see, I put a note here, all right, I said, this also correlates to the many Irish last Scotland and British names across the Americas today and including Spaniard names, most notably in South America and the Caribbeans. Yep. So folks, when they are um, setting up these colonies, they're renaming stuff. Okay? All right. The people stayed many generations in Ireland, and it is possible that their primary necropolis or burial grounds, was either at the megalithic site at Newgrange or the sacred site of Terra. I thought that was interesting that you all have a sacred site called Terra, both of which resides on the ri- river Boyne, Bu- uh, or I don't know if that's Boney or Boyne, to the north of Dublin. After many generations, probably in the 6th century BC, the Picts came to Ireland from an unknown location. All right, so we're gonna get into that. But let's look at this map. Because I, I I want my European fam, I, I, I want y'all, dang, y'all was hoping I could blow this map up. Don't want it nab it. I can't blow it up. All right, so the map demonstrates that Ireland Ireland was called Scotia. Child. This is really really interesting. Okay, so sorry I can't blow this up fam. But uh, if you could see my cursor there you have it. There's um <clears throat> Ireland called Scotia child. So let's, uh, let's, I had a note on this pits stuff. Okay. So the pits were linked with the Alpine house via Kenneth McAlpin. Perhaps it was through marriage. So I'm just going to jump over real quick. Doggone it. I should have had it up. That's on me for not having it up. So, hold on a second. Let me uh, just put that uh, (laughs) Civil War picture up. Uh, Y'all actually can't see that. All right. Well, let me try to find... uh, Let me pull up my source. Uh, I thought I had it. I forgot to pull it up, rather. Okay, so... We are going to pull that up. Just a second here. Uh, I want to pull up my book. I'm going to have to. Bear with me here. It is. I want to pull this up for you. Okay, we're getting there. Okay, I can bring it back on the screen for you. Okay, where is it at? Display. All right, so um, we're just gonna and and this is the book that we're doing our series off of, um, about the the black nobility and bloodlines and rulers. Okay, so we are going to pick back up on this, this particular series. We're literally going through all of the rulers from Scotland and the British Isles. And we are um, going through like the houses and all of that jazz. Okay, so again, this is why this particular information intrigued me. Okay. Cause, Cause they're talking about the pits in here. Okay. So let's go back to the house of Alpine or Alpine. So it's saying Fergus Moore, Negro, Kenneth McAlpine, Donald Mack, Alpine, Constantine. So it's going through all of these names. The following rulers of Scotland, regardless of their blood connection with Kenneth McAlpin, politically selected, other dynasty titles. Okay, so it's going through all of these houses. I think somebody in the comment section was asking about the different houses. And um, I think the question was when the white rulership came into play. Okay, so all of these different houses, this, 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 and the third... So, um, the forefather of Kenneth McAlpine, and it's uh, just so y'all know, I discovered McAlpine was pretty much a variation exists today called McAlpine. And that's why I keep making the mistake of saying McAlpine because I'm more familiar with McAlpine than McAlpine. Right, so the forefather of Kenneth McAlpine, Penn and all his descendants was Ferguson Moore, the Negro Black or Niger, who was the first king of Scotland. Now, this is interesting because they're talking about up in the Greek, uh, face and Geneva Bibles. The African Ethiopian is identified as a Moor. Okay, so they're going through all of the variations of what more mean, but basically meaning a melanated, heavily melanated, a.k.a. Black person. The Scottish-British-Moorish King James made a comment to his wife Anne that his lineage sprung from Fergus' race. In the great gallery of the place of Holly Ra- Hollywood House in Edinburgh, there exists 89 portraits of the Scottish King from Fergus Moore, Negro, to Charles II, the Black Boy, okay? So just bringing up to the fam, <clears throat> either way you cut it, the rulership, the original rulership of Scotland, England, and Ireland we're heavily melanated, a.k.a. black, a.k.a. black, okay? So this particular work, they're linking them back to um, Ethiopia, okay? What we're on now, they're uh, leaking it back to uh, the princess, back to Egypt. All right, so let's uh, go on. So this is the first time the pits came into play. The Christian-converted Moorish Pictish Kenneth McAlpine was also called Niger-Val-Dub, because remember, Dub means black. So you know that Dublin means black land. So Niger-Val-Dub, dub was the first king of scott scottish alpine dynasty okay so the scottish archaeologist david McRitch- McRitchie stressed that alpine the father of kenneth mcalpine was a half black pit and a half black Scot. Uh, whose son, Kenneth, was the first to merge the two foremost branches of the Blacks in Scotland. Okay, so with the question of the pits, let me jump back over here, where they're saying after many generations, probably in the 6th century BC, the pits came to Ireland from an unknown location. So to be honest, I don't know if the pits was, was already there as indigenous folks. And that, uh, McAlpin and them <clears throat> marry into it or not. Okay. Uh, so just to, to black, uh, to jump down, saying every king who followed Kenneth McAlpine was of Moorish descent, McAlpin's descendant, Kenneth Dubb, Niger, Duff, or Duffy, and all his successors were called the Sons of the Black, the four most popular African Moorish kings to rule Scotland, were Kenneth McAlpin, Niger, Val Dub, Kenneth the Niger, Macbeth, and King James, King James Stewart, okay? All right, so I just wanted to refresh the fam's memory that uh, this, what they're calling a myth of the original queen of Scotland being from Egypt, which is slash Africa, because you know, some people like to forget conveniently like to forget that Egypt is in what they're calling now Africa. It it, it still baffles me, but it's not far-fetched for me because of the fact that we know this McAlpine lineage was from Africa. Okay, all right, so the chronicles indicate that the Scotian people were not impressed with these unwelcome, but possibly, uh, see, I I can't make this up, y'all. Let me sip on this water. Now, the chronicles indicate, and I'm gonna try, y'all, I'm gonna try to find that first one, that the Scotian people were not impressed with these unwelcome, but possibly related. Mm -hmm. Newcomers to their shores, and that the Basque had come with no or too few women. A deal was therefore struck, whereby the Scotian people of Ireland gave the Basque the pits. Some of their women and advised them to go to Scotland instead. This they did, and the new Scotian Petish Colony there became rather successful, so much so that many of the Scotians later emigrated to that region by choice. It was through this process that the name Scotia. Became transferred from Ireland to what we now n- call Scotland. Likewise, Iberia, the name for Spain, that had been derived from the son of Getholius called Hiber, was also donated to <laughs> Scotland donated. <laughs> donated to Scotland, which became known as Hibernia. Okay. So, uh, pretty interesting stuff here. Um, All day long, I believe the pits intermarried. You know, kind of the same thing that we see today in the Americas. The intermarrying going on. And them being related to each other. So, meaning... Um, they're saying the, the Basque being related to these Africans, very well possible, very well possible. Okay, so let's continue. Okay, the first avenue of research might be the origins of the tech. Scotter Chronicon is a Scottish chronicle based upon much older texts that have come from many locations, including uh, Ireland, the Liber, Gabala from the Book of Leinster, and Wales, the Historia Britinum. But this diverse range of chronicles is obviously not the original source. So where did the story originate? One possibility is given to us by Ninnuus, the monk who penned the historian Britinum. He indicated that he used Roman and Ecclesiastical uh, documents to compose his history of Britain. And this seems likely as some of his work appears to be taken from the World Chronicle by Bishop Eusebius. It will, it will be demonstrated in a later chapter that the chron- chronology of Egypt used in Chronicon was taken directly from Eusebius, so he is definitely a likely source for the Skoda story. But as ever, Eusebius was only quoting others, and it would appear that some of his inspiration was taken from Euromyrus, a Greek historian who wrote a physiological romance called Sacred Scripture. Although it embedded features of the Skoda story, U- humorous story was largely f- fictional, and what we really looking for is a true history. All right, so again, they're trying to find out where the source of this quote quote myth myth-slash-story came from so that's all they're saying there they're going through who original one of the authors of the story and then trying to determine where he got it from so that's all they're saying in that and I'm just going over that to let you know how controversial this is and how they're trying to prove it all right so let's see um let's see all right. So, trying to see how far back, even aspects that are generally unknown today, let alone in cold and drafty monastery in the 15th century Scotland, can be shown to be correct. Take, for instance, the general history of Egypt. This is described as the kingdom of Egypt, the name of which was ori- originally Ethria is the most ancient of all kingdoms except for the kingdom of Scathia, all right? Egypt is indeed a very ancient kingdom, as we all know, but that is not the interesting element here. The fascinating aspect of this quote is the unusual name that was given to Egypt, Ethria. Surprisingly enough, Egypt was indeed known as Ethria. And the true spelling of the name in the Egyptian was actually Arturi, I'm sorry, arturti or eturti All right, so it's just saying the name relates to the water and the flooding of the Nile. Um, so but let's get to it. In addition, Jeffrey Keating, the vulnerable historian of Ireland, indicates that his name that this name for Egypt was reduced down to the name Aria in later generations and used for the, oh, child, that's why I highlighted this, child, I had forgot. (laughs) Used for the name of the the, the island, Ireland. So let me just jump back here. So they basically saying, going by Egypt's, Original name, Ethria, and it was actually Artur-T or Etur-T, and that was a reduced down because y'all know how things uh, over the centuries or whatever, either stuff gets renamed or it's the, the enunciation starts to get pronounced differently, Okay. I mean, heck, we see that today. Uh, you all at Rock with Me know, you know my country language. I botch up a word in a minute, <laughs> but anyhow, they were saying it was reduced down to area or area in later generations and used for the i the islands of Ireland. Child. So, it's saying it is from the area that the modern name of Erie was derived. Thus, the current name for Ireland is actually a corruption of an original name of Egypt. Interestingly, Keaton states that this was also the original name for Crete. And we shall be looking at some... Yeah, 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 what? All right, so... I have already demonstrated that the Judaism was based upon the creed and culture of the Armarna regime of Pharaoh Akhenaten, and that many of the Old Testament verses have been copied verbatim from ancient Egyptian texts, including large segments of Genesis, Exodus, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon and the Lord's Prayer. And I'm just going to throw in if that was copied directly out of the Sumerian text. Because you can literally line it up word for word. Only difference is the Sumerian text, instead of saying the Lord, this, the God, that, it gives you actual names. But here we go. We tend to think of our present culture as being a mix of Celtic, Roman, and Anglo-Saxon societies that have been heavily influenced by a later blanket of Judaism, Christianity. However, had early Celtic culture been founded upon Egyptian principles, Armana principles, we would hardly notice the difference. I'm seconding that with you, author, because the Armana culture of Pharaoh Akhenaten is our Judeo-Christian culture, whether this was derived directly from Egypt or via indirect transmission route of Israel and Rome. Like I've been saying, and I'm going to keep being consistent, based on research, Again, religion, politics, and how to structure the society no- norms comes from these ancient civilization. Civilizations. Okay, so if you want to put Egypt in there, fine. But uh the Sumner civilizations. That's where this stuff stems from. Okay? Alright, so let me go back. I don't know where I jumped to. What page is this? Uh, 24. Alright, so where am I at 24? Okay, so... Why is this not doing it? I had a mark. I don't know why it's doing this. Okay. I'm just going to read this right quick. I don't know what happened to my highlights. Maybe I forgot to highlight. This brings us back to the nub of this investigation for if Princess Skoda was the daughter of a pharaoh, then evidence for her existence should be available available in the relatively well-recorded history of Egypt Some of the previous research and speculations into her origins has casually identified her as a daughter of Pharaoh Akhenaten of the Amarna dynasty, but not shown any convincing reason why this should be so. In contrast, this chapter will not only positively identify the Pharaoh and his daughter, Princess Skoda, but also positively identify her husband, Prince Gathelios, historical records. This will represent a fundamental turning point in the Irish Scott history, not simply because it will be shown that both Skoda and Gaithlios are relatively well known, but also because their discovery turns fiction into fact. The ancient history of these land and peoples as detailed in the Great chronicle of Skoda Chronicon has long been sidelined and dismissed as being unreliable mythology. However, if we are to show that the names used in these ancient chronicles equate with the known history of Egypt, then these chronicles must be closer to real life than fable. Suddenly, there is the very real prospect that the ancient history of the greater British Isles was conceived and nurtured within the advanced culture of ancient Egypt. And since modern Judaism and Christianity were both born from Egyptian theology, the long-held notion that Ireland originally harbored the secrets of what has become known as the old church of Christianity may not be so far wide of the mark. Okay, so again, um, I say, and I say again, I don't know how folks can't make the connection between Christianity and, well, just in this case, because it, it's too much for some people to get in to sooner in the Sumerian text, so I'll keep it simple, although... That's the foundation of it all, them Sumerian texts. We'll go with the Egyptian civilization and their belief system. How folks can't line up the two between that and Christianity, that's what you call cognitive dissonance at its finest. All right, so who was this fabled prince of Greece who briefly became pharaoh of Egypt who is said to have fled toward Ireland and which pharaoh from these ancient lands would have dared give his daughter away to a renegade prince from a foreign land? The ancient texts of Egypt clearly states or state that Egypt never gave its princesses away to foreigners. So how would this have happened? So, you know what, Egypt, uh, I think that's a great policy, right? All right, but at the height of the new kingdom, pharaohs regularly took to wife the daughters of Near East princes, but refused to permit their own daughters to to be married off to foreign rulers, okay? So, he's just proving his point that that wasn't uh typ- typically how they did it. Biblical scholars, okay? So uh, he's just throwing this in here. Biblical scholars might point towards the marriage of King Solomon and an Egyptian princess and indicate that the ancient texts were obviously wrong in their boasting. now, you know biblical people. I know y'all know that story. This did indeed remain a bit of a problem until I deduced in the book of Solomon that King Solomon was also a lower Egyptian pharaoh himself. In other words, the princess in the biblical accounts had not been given away to a foreigner at all as King Solomon was resident in Tanis or Tanis in the Nile Delta, but if Egyptian princesses were never given to foreign princes, then the Scotta Chronicle story is already looking suspect unless we can reinterpret it in some manner. The name of the royal father of Skoda and the era in which he reigned are debatable, too. Some researchers, so I'm going through all of this, fam. So, just to show you how the author was looking at all of the different logical reasons on why this story of (coughs) an Egyptian queen being um, the head of that African bloodline that turned out to be the rulers of Europe. Okay, so in this case specifically, Scotland and Ireland, okay? So I'm kind of going through this to let you know that the author did attempt to do his due diligence to go through these different particular articles. Okay? Uh, not articles, these these different um scenarios. Okay, the name of the royal father of Skoda and the era in which he reigned are debatable too. Some researchers have been led astray by the biblical chronology because of the frequent reference to the biblical exodus within Skoda Chronicon. And so they place the error as being just after Ramesses II, the supposed, the supposed pharaoh of the biblical exodus. One interpretation of Skoda Chronicon even places the error in the 6th century BC because of the mention of the Persian pharaoh of Egypt, Urxis. Even the translator of Skratokanian, Donald Watts, is slightly confused. He placed the father of Skoda in the Armana era, which is correct, but he could not deduce exactly which pharaoh he should be. Lorraine Evans said the Pharaoh concern was Akhenaten. I- I she was right, of course, but there was no real explanation to how she came to that conclusion. In actual fact, the truth about the error and the precise Pharaoh concern is fairly plain and simple. <laughs> the pharaonic chronology is given in Book 1, Chapter 10 of Walter Bauer's. Scott a Chronicon, I'm telling y'all, I need to find this, find this, um, book. And here the author is plainly following the records of the Greco-Egyptian historian Manetho. If we list the two chronicles together, readers will clearly see the comparison. Okay, so this is how Bauer laid it out. This is how, um, Manitho laid it out. Okay, so you can see how he's doing the different names. Amorous in the Bower, and then amosis in the Mantheo. So you see how it's just spelled slightly different. Uh, Shebron, Shebron, um, Ammosis, Ammosis. Okay, so I'm not going to go through all of this, but you can see how they line up. Pretty closely on these particular pharaohs, okay. Um, so Horus, we all familiar with Horus, but I was it, it was interesting and it was Horus over here, okay. All right, so let me pause for a sec. All right. So, those are the different pharaohs. Okay, so again, he's just giving you the version of where um, Bauer, who remember he's the author of this um, Scotta Chronicon, which is giving the information, is the origin of this information of uh, an Egyptian queen of Scotland and Ireland, okay? She was the first uh, Egyptian queen of Scotland and Ireland, and actually, Scotland is named after her, okay? So um, so Bauer, uh they're saying that they believe he got his information from um, Manitho, Okay, which I'm assuming had to be an earlier um, author. All right. Okay, did he list Ramesses down there? Okay, I'm just trying to be nosy. All right. All right, so again, it's just pointing out that it it demonstrates that Bower had copied Manitho's work with him in his monastery. Okay. All right. So we're going to say, let me see. Bauer had not only faithfully copied this text, minus one Pharaoh, he had also added some other interesting details, which might suggest that he had access to other documents long since lost to us. The mention of Moses' birth. Yeah, because, yeah, y'all, let me just flip back to that. Okay, he got it over here. Yeah, that was kind of tripping me out that he mentioned Moses' birth. Okay, Because I told y'all I'm not, I ain't uh, no Bible scholar. I'm far from it. I only know the highlights. Uh, And then, you know, when folks say certain things, sometimes it it triggers them years and years worth of Bible classes and I'll be like, oh, that don't sound right. It sounds familiar and it don't sound right. And then I'll have to go pull out the book and go over it and interpret what it really means. Okay. So I don't remember when Moses was born and what it all meant and all of that. So, um, you know that part okay so the mention of Moses birth in Bauer's account is one of these interesting additional interpolations uh, interpolations and the position in which this has been placed ties in very nicely with the revised history of Egypt that I have already outlined in the book Jesus last of the pharaohs the notion that Moses was actually tooth Moses child so you biblical people honey I hope y'all enjoying this I hope y'all enjoying this and let me know y'all thoughts on this now I ain't never heard of this child that um what's his face uh let me just say in a, uh, the notion that Moses was actually tooth Moses the brother of Akhenaten. If this were so, then the biblical Moses would have been a son of um, Amenhotep the third. Oh, okay. So Amenhotep, sorry, the third is Amen- Amenophis in Mantheos chronic chronology. Oh, okay. Got you, got you, got you, got you. Okay. All right. So um, so which is what Bauer appears to indicate. Thus, Moses, tooth Moses, and Akhenaten would have been brothers which is exactly what I have previously demonstrated from other evidence and sources. Bauer and Manitho also state that the biblical exodus took place just after the reign of Asenskris, which is again, perfectly correct, according to the same revised Amarna history of Judaism, as we shall see shortly. Child. all right biblical folks i hope y'all getting on y'all um dust off y'all bibles or y'all probably know all this stuff already but line this stuff up child because i ain't fencing to sit up here and lie it's only in spurts for me okay so and, you know he's just going again through the different Pharaohs. Alright, so um let me see where's my next notes. Ah uh, do, 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 do 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 do. Okay, I think that's Yep, yeah, we talked about that. So 29. Sorry, y'all. Yeah, I have to jump around because this is a big book. Okay, 29. Within <clears throat> Man- Mantheos differing accounts derive from the multitude of transmission routes for his original king list. <clears throat> the era of Moses and the Exodus is given two possible locations or errors either at the time of Thief Moses, Amosis at the beginning of the 18th dynasty or at the time of rest or Rathetus during the Amarna era. This equates very well with Manetho's other accounts and with the conclusion drawn in my previous works. In short, there were two exoduses out of Egypt evolve, involving the Judaic peoples. So, did y'all know this? Child, I didn't know. Well, don't base it on me, y'all, because I, I wasn't up in, to the Bible that deep, but I at least remember this story that's taught in Christianity about the Exodus. Now, the two Exodus, I don't remember them teaching that. So, the first being the great Hycos, high Hycosis. High Exodus during the reign of Amosi I, and the second being the smaller Amarna exodus of Ak- Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Now, this tripped me out, or Akhenaten, which, you know, same thing. And Kaya. So, y'all peep that. Nefertiti's another name for Nefertiti is Kaya. So all of you all with that Kaya name, which mostly I see Kaya's as being melanated girls and women, there you have it. Nefertiti is that origin of that name. I thought that was pretty cool. All right, so the exodus of Akhenaten and Nefertiti or Kaira at the end of the Amarna era. And so, although the translators of Manitho are confused by this apparent duplication of the Exodus, the differing accounts are perfectly correct. All right, so I did want to put that in here. Okay. Thus, it would appear to be abundantly clear that the Pharaoh uh, Akacharis... Rathitus, the father princess Skoda was actually Akhenaten. And so we now, so we have narrowed the era of the Skoda Exodus down considerably for we now know where and approximately when the princess was born. And we may even know a great deal about her life and her disappearance from Egypt. All right, y'all. So, finally, it should be noted that all of the Armana pharaohs, including Samakari, uh, this is, I'm guessing, King Tut, rather, Tukhaman and Ai, only Akhenaten had children during his reign. that makes sense to me and so the pharaoh from this era could be the father of Skoda, is again akhenaten here then we appear to have a definitive resolution to to the question of which pharaoh fathered princess Skoda. whatever the level of truth and fact that resides within the rest of the chronicon story it is fairly certain that the pharaoh it speaks of is a real historical character. He was the pharaoh Akhenaten, and just as the Scottish tale implies, he presided over a pretty unstable regime. However, the Skoda story happens to take place during a period of unprecedented social turmoil within Egypt, an era during which even a mighty pharaoh, Akhenaten himself, may have been forced into exile. However, would Bauer Fordham, or any other previous chroniclers who have handled this history have known that it was entirely possible that an Egyptian pr- princess may well have escaped from the crumbling Amarna regime of Akhenaten by boat? If the discovery of Akhenaten being the father of Skoda greatly strengthens the Chronicle's story, then which Akhenaten's six daughters could have been called Skoda. Hmm. All right, so let's see. Page 36. All right, come on. Where's my next highlight? Oh, okay, it was just the next page. All right. Okay, I did that. All right, 36, 37. All right, so let's talk about her name. Sorry, yeah, I'm jumping around. <laughs> like many a prince or princess before and after, Skoda became known for her deeds rather than her birth name. So Gatholus gathered together all his followers and left Egypt with his wife Skoda because he was afraid to return to the region from which he had come, Greece. Because of the old feuds, he directed his course westward. Okay, so uh, that's coming from one of the sources, one of the ancient sources talking about uh, Gathlios and Skoda. Thus, the heroine princess became known as Skoti, or when we're using Sean Connery's accent, Shoki, a name which refers to the boat of the setting sun, the boat on which the sun god rowed towards the western horizon. A more fitting name for this queen would be hard to find. This reasoning is similar to the name given in mythology. Now, this was interesting, y'all. This is interesting. I put this in here because, you know, I just want to spark some folks thinking on the analogies he's giving. All right. So this is one of the analogies he's going to give with um, Princess Skoda's name you know, how she became Princess Skoda and if that's really her. All right, so this reasoning is similar to the name given in the mythology to Mary Magdalene. She too was exiled from her homeland and she too is reputed to have sailed westwards from the eastern Mediterranean towards France in a boat with no oars or crew. So in the legends that describe this journey, the Magdalene is called Mary Stella, or Sea Star, okay, so that makes sense, so he's basically saying that um, just like Skoda, Princess Skoda became known, Princess Skoda, which was, that name Skoda was more likely based on um, the boat on which the sun got, god rode, he's given the analogy how Mary Magdalene is called Mary stellar, or sea star. And since this legend, okay, now, you know, something just came to me. Don't think it slipped past me from an esoteric perspective that you have women navigating the sea and escaping. Um, mm, I so did. Those of you that are into esoteric, y'all want y'all to Sip on that a little bit. So anyway, and since this legend was so important to the Illuminati, it went on to spawn Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's more modern legend of the Mari Celeste, Mary Celeste, a name that can be translated as Sea Heaven or perhaps Sea Star. Mm -hmm. Like I told y'all, it's really esoteric. Okay, so Negro, this voyage of the Magdalene also spawned the cult of the Black Madonna. It is said that several of the New Testament Marys, including Mary Magdalene, were on this voyage to the Provence in France, or France. Whether Mary the Virgin was on this small boat or not, she was later portrayed as being Black, both in France and across the wider continent, some enterprising minorities have jumped upon this mention of blackness, as they often do, and argued that Mary was of an African phenotype, which is plain and simply nonsense born of desperation. Okay, so bear with the author here, bear with them, bear with them that respected authors like Lynn Pickett should follow their lead just goes to show how far this political correctness has spread. There are even some overzealous types who inhabited archaeological discussion sites on the web and tried to convince all and sundry that the beautiful bust of Nefertiti demonstrate that she was a negress. So such a strategy, again, smacks of desperation. Okay, so we already know What time that is, uh, you know, ain't nothing black, but yet every time they dig, it's black. So even this broad that's saying Mary Magdalene wasn't black, now you're going to say Nefertiti wasn't black, although she came out of Africa. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say that melanated people all come from Africa, but yet you want to exclude Egypt. Oh, okay then. All right. So he's saying, of course, most of the recent historians, this is my notes. Of course, most recent historians would say the idea of Mary being black, hence Jesus being black is crazy, but yet they came from where? We know that Jesus being the Messiah was granted by the council of Nicaea. Where we would have a picture, where we have a picture, thanks to Brother O'Dell, shout out to Brother O'Dell, of that council, which was black. So would it not make sense that Jesus was black and hence his mother? All right, so let's look at this pic that uh, Brother O'Dell dropped for us recently. Just come on. Just drop this. Also, oh, now I'm pissed. Ah, let me pause it. I'm pissed because I literally have the link and uh, YouTube's acting crazy. So hold on, fam. Alright, I don't know why YouTube wanna play with me today. Okay? So, um, This is a drop that we did uh, about two weeks ago. Shout out to Brother Odell. This is a picture of the Council of Nicaea. You know that council that made the decision for Jesus to become the Messiah? Uh, Yeah, that part. Okay, so let's see. Yeah, that's right. Hey, but This go. is the Council Thank of Nicaea 325. BD. Just confirming right. what the sister is saying. Uh, the the church over here, and where I'm from, the church was uh, melanated. Yeah, exactly. Is so the, the, white, man, the white man did not he bring you there. that no, Bible. I'm... Nope. So you're saying this is a depiction of the Council of Nicaea. Yes, sister, yeah. I'm saying that. I'm saying who gave, that. Who gave That's exactly you, what I'm saying. Who gave you Jesus? Who gave you Jesus? Alright, fam. So, uh, what about Mary Magdalene? Or, or, or Mary, the mother of Jesus? Yeah, that part. Alright? So, uh, this is my stuff. <laughs> From uh, the Age of Ascension with Brother Odell. This is part three. Okay. So let's get back to this work. Folks want to play crazy with us. (laughs) All right. Okay. But to place the truth into public view, perhaps as a calculated snub to the Catholic authorities, The Illuminati Illuminati used a series of secret codes that only the initiated would be able to excite, decipher. Sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied. In this particular case, they simply painted Mary black. Okay, so these are some of the the more excuses that folks are using. While the Illuminati may have given a host of banal reasons for this choice, from the black color denoting death to the original statues being made of ebony, the truth is that the color actually revealed Mary's true ancestry. Okay, so the author saying uh, no matter how many excuses you all want to put, uh, uh, the lady was black. The simple answer to this cryptic code is that in the Egyptian language, black is called. Cam, and at the same time, the proper name Cam happens to refer to Egypt herself. (laughs) So the blackness of these Madonnas simply means that Mary, in fact, both Marys, were of Egyptian heritage, which is exactly what I relate in the book Cleopatra, Okay, because, you know, she all of a sudden turned Caucasian white also. Now, they uh, out of Egypt, out of Africa. So, again, you can't have it both ways. You can't say all black people came from Africa, but then you want to pick and choose. Oh, but uh, now that person, Cleopatra, was white. Jesus married them were white, i a aka Caucasian. Hence, that Asian and that Caucasian. So you can't have it both ways. This is why Mary and the infant Jesus were said to have fled to Egypt when there was a threat to his life. Mary's family was of Egyptian heritage. And so it was natural enough for Mary to go to her homeland for safety and where the young Jesus could complete his education at Heliopolis. Probably not pronouncing it right, but hey. Also on board this small boat heading towards France was a young servant called Sarah, who again said to be black. So for all of you women named Sarah, we're going to break down what the origin of that name, what it really means. But there's also a song dedicated to you, Sarahs, Actually, by two Caucasian men from back up in the day, Hall and Oates, called Sarah Smiles. And if you're melanated, you might know the song, either hearing your parents play it. That's how I know the song. Uh, two Caucasian men, but uh, they were great at R&B, Hall & Notes. So, yeah, Sarah smiles. So, but the Hebrew name Sarah simply means princess. I thought that was so sweet. I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's so sweet. Sarah means princess. Oh, and so, the true parentage of this young servant should be obvious. She was Mary Magdalene's daughter, fathered by Jesus. So, you uh, people, if you don't know these particular stories, the mythology, um, Dan Brown, I'm not gonna lie, I heard it out of Dan Brown's, um, book. Dang, y'all know what I'm talking about. Da Vinci Code, Da Vinci Code, Da Vinci Code, Da Vinci Code. That's where I read about the whole Mary Magdalene, she wasn't no, uh, lady of the night. Cause you know, in the Bible, women always got to be for the streets. (laughs) either for the streets, well, either way, it's for the streets, because I was going to say, you know, making a man man fall from his glory, whatever the case may be, misleading him and making him fall from grace. Always got to be for the streets, according to the Bible. You know, that's what they say. Mary Magdalene was for the street. She was a lady of the night. But other accounts say that that was his old lady. That was his wife and they had a daughter. This young Sarah or princess is especially venerated by the gypsy community at St. Marie's de la Mer in Provence, France where the small boat is supposed to have come ashore, the gypsies reenact Sarah's arrival on these shores every 24th and 25th of May and hold a festival there. See, I didn't know that, child. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So if y'all haven't read The Da Vinci Code, or just go watch the movie. I forgot, child. They didn't made a movie out of it. Uh, I read the book because the book became really, really popular. Um, Dan Brown goes into all of this about uh, Mary Magdalene and Jesus, and it it was pretty good. He did a very, very good job with it. It's a lot of symbolism in the movie and and in the book. But anyway, I didn't know they hold a festival every year this again demonstrates the possible link between the story of egypt as the name for the gypsies themselves is also supposed to have been derived from the name egypt see i didn't even know that but gypsies egypt yeah pretty close pretty close pretty close all right so let's get on to gethilos Using these different sources, a consistent picture begins to emerge about the turbulent times and royal marriage that occurred at about the time of biblical exodus. In the time of Moses, there was a certain king of one of the kingdoms of Greece called Neolus. He had a son who was good-looking but mentally unstable, Gathlios by name. Since he had not been permitted to hold any position of power in the kingdom, he was provoked to anger, and with the support of a large number of friends, he inflicted many disasters on his father's kingdom. He greatly outraged both his father and the inhabitants of the country with his violent behavior. So he was driven out of his native land and sailed off to Egypt, and there, since he was outstandingly brave and daring and of royal descent, he was united in marriage with Scolta, the daughter of Pharaoh. So they're given a different <laughs> Pharaoh. But again, he, the author is just pointing out another account of Gathias, who was uh, the husband of um, Queen Scolta who it is said that Scotland got its name from. Okay, so he's just giving another account of Gathela's existence and the fact that he was exiled from his homeland. Uh, Just giving another account. All right. Okay, so it says, note here that the comment about the prince being mentally unstable, which is an obvious comment about the um, Amarna dynasty, Akhenaten was known as the unstable one, the criminal of Akhenaten, or the heretic pharaoh. But while this mental instability was a particularly comment about Akhenaten himself, from the Theban Amun priesthood point of view, it is likely that it also applied to the Armana dynasty. Okay, I mean, that's, that's reasonable. And in particular, to any of the administration and royal family who publicly supported the god Aten. Professor Watt, the translator of Chronicon sees this royal instability as being an unusual feature of the text he says this it is curious that gaethlius early life is portrayed in such hostile terms which have no parallel in the irish tradition another account in bower's story says that gaethlius married his egyptian princess before he exiled to Egypt. Yet another indicates that Gathlius and his army were assisting Pharaohs to Ignacy. Y'all, I had to highlight this for y'all again. Yet another indicates that the Gathlius and his army were assisting Pharaoh to eject the Israelites, the Hyksos, from Egypt. Finally, one last chronicle indicates that Gaius, now called Aglilius, was actually battling his brother Apis rather than his father. All right, so I just found it interesting, um, that they were talking about them kicking out the Israelites, um, out of Egypt, of course, uh, and so, but the point of this, he was saying that he probably wasn't battling his father, but it was his Uh, he was actually battling his brother rather than his father. Firstly, it should be noted that it is entirely possible that Mantheo was the original source for uh, Scottoquanicon. Yeah, and we kind of picked that up too. Secondly, both of these stories occurred at the substantially the same time the Gaethleos story relates to the era of Akhenaten, as we have seen, while the Hame story relates to the time of Akhenaten's uncle. Thirdly, the story of Gaethleos eventually ends up in Ireland, where some of the newcomers to that ir- island, island were known as Toothotha the Danan or okay you biblical people biblical people biblical people Does y'all like to talk about these tribes uh, this tribes of that Child. so they saying that the story of gatetheios eventually ends up in Ireland where some of the newcomers to that Ireland were known as Tuatha uh, Dedanan, or the tribe of Danin. If this is true, then some of the exiles who left Egypt with King Gathlios must have been the tribe of Danin. Okay, so ain't that the tribe of Daniel? all I ain't trying to start nothing. All right, so I'm not gonna go through, I didn't go through all of this, but you could certainly pick up this book and go through it yourself because child he goes through Caesar and all of that. Um he really breaks this stuff down and, and correlates it to the Bible. Um, I wasn't trying to do all that for this purpose. All right. So I did want to get into these Phoenicians. Let's get into these Phoenicians. Unfortunately, the origin of the Phoenicians are shrouded in mystery and classical mythology merely suggests a homeland in Scathia, a modern Ukraine. Now, child, like I said, I didn't learn me something new again. I didn't know that. I didn't know that, child. So that puts a new spin on this whole Ukraine stuff. Did not know that, fam. However, in complete contrast to, to this, it is a fact that the majority of Phoenician art and architecture display distinctly Egyptian influences and styles, and so a close cultural link to the exile, Hyksos Israelite is a. Entirely possible. So I want y'all to think about what's going on in Ukraine today. I did not know if there was a connection with what is called Ukraine, the Phoenicians, and the Israelites. Hmm. The most probable answer to which classical history subscribes is that the military and political pressures forced these people out into the Mediterranean. But the new twist to this history is that this was not pressure from the Hittites upon the peoples of the Leviathan coast. Instead, this was a few centuries earlier. The pressure came from Upper Egypt and it was applied to the Hyksos Hyksos pharaohs of lower Egypt. The first wave of migrants would have set out from Egypt 1580 BC as I most I most the first swept power in lower Egypt and forced the Hyksos people out of the country and into new coastal settlements across the eastern Mediterranean. This, however, was not the only civil war in Egypt, and the religious reforms of Akhenaten in the 14th century BC destabilized Egypt in strikingly uh, similar fashion. Because if I'm not mistaken, didn't Akhenaten change from uh, many worship of different Egyptian gods into one singular worship? of a God which carries all of the faiths, the different uh, religious faiths today. All right. So once more sections of the lower Egyptian Hyksos people and monarchy were being pushed out across the Mediterranean in a flotilla of small craft. All right. So, chow, so remember the, um, uh, the, the hike, so, uh, they're uh, Israelites. Okay. All right. I got to go back to my thing. All right. Let me see. Go back to my thing. Bear with me here, fam. All right. we Talked about that. Okay. The Phoenicians, the Phoenicians, the Phoenicians, who are also known for the origins of banking. But let's continue. This new nation was, of course, the Phoenicians. Okay, so let me let me back this up. I'm gonna have to back it up to give it a little bit more content. We have looked at the Minoan Empire in some detail and witnessed its eventual demise. That's why I'm saying, you all. He did a very good job in his book, um, just for the sake of time and to keep us as focused as I can. I had to skip all of that out, but he went through the different empires and stuff because what he's trying to do is prove the point of how this Egyptian... Queen, nicknamed Skoda, the name Scotland or Scots was based on her. Okay, so he went through all of the different time periods, all of the different empires. Did the little comparison this, that, and the third. But you learn a lot when you're reading along with him through this. All right. So, however, nothing in human history is static and where one empire fails, a new nation normally rises to fill the strategic and commercial vacuum. No kidding. The seafaring economy of the Mediterranean was to be no different, and so as the last of the Minoans ebbed away, the mainland Greeks rose in maritime power and influence. But such was the scale of the available commerce that there was room for another player in this market. And so a small nation from the Levant began to make enrolls into this Greek dominance of the seas. This new nation was, of course, the Phoenicians. However, one researcher in the field reports that the rise of the Phoenicians may have been closely and casually linked with the demise of the Minoans. The Phoenicians and the Celts may have originated in the Indus Valley and also from the Gnosis civilization of Crete. As mentioned previously, a cultural link between the Myo Maio- yeah don't know what I'm trying to say. Myoans and Phoenicians would make a degree of sense as both were major maritime empires and the latter simply seemed to have taken over when the former decline that the Phoenicians may have been linked to the Minoan allies the Israelites is implicit in their original name as they appear to have called themselves ah see that y'all I didn't even know that that's uh the the Canaan's the Kenean or the Canaanites I didn't know that the original Canaanites was K-E-N-A-A-N-I the derivative of that name. This term is traditionally said to mean merchant. Now y'all peep that game. Child, I ain't set up and lied upon these people. None of that. That's what they're saying. Canaanites, this term is traditionally said to mean merchant. While the land of Canaan Canaan, refers to lowlands, the book Cleopatra translates the term merchant as the more accurate meaning banker. What did I say the Phoenicians are known for? They're known for the origins of what? Banking. The book of Leviticus relates that the land of Canaan was given to the Israelites after Joshua conquered it. And since Joshua was the next generation after Moses, this event would have been just after the exodus of uh, Gatholos and just before the rise of the Phoenician Empire. This account and the previous arguments that have been discussed Therefore demonstrate possibly possible links between the Israelites, the Minoans, and the Phoenicians. These may have been simply trading links, although it is much more likely in this kind of error that any such links were also cemented with a royal alliance, absolutely. With Minoah princesses being packed off to Avaris and Armana. The offsprings of these diplomatic unions would then be free to travel back to Crete and there and take with them the intermingled Egyptian Minoan culture. Okay, so in other words, these different nations were intermarrying. And we know this is not far fetched because uh, that's all. That's how they've been doing it. That's how they've been doing it across the planet. Okay? That's how it was done in Europe. With the pits, intermarrying with um, the McAlpines, them, who are from Africa. Okay? in the Americas with the Europeans intermarrying marrying <clears throat> with the indigenous people of the Americas, a.k.a. the Indians. What do we see happening today in Africa? <clears throat> aren't the Chinese in Africa? And aren't Chinese men... Marrying and having children with African women, that's always how it's been done. So this is not far-fetched at all. Further evidence that the Phoenicians and the Manoas were closely related can be seen in the name given to the Phoenician boat, which was Kefti, or Keti, I'm sorry, Kefti. But the Egyptian name for the Minoans was Kefti. Oh, that's the same thing. And the Bible calls them Captor. Yeah, they was uh intermingling and marrying each other and all of this jazz. However, the Bible's concordance in its usual. Manor does confirm that all these tribes were much the same or at least very closely related. So the captor, uh, the original home of the Philistines, perhaps on the southwest coast of Asia Minor, maybe in Egypt or close by, or more probably on the island of Crete, the Philistine and inhabited uh philista or philistia descendants of Masriam, who immigrated from crete to the western sea coast of canaan canaan the fourth son of ham and the uh, progeny of the phoenicians and of the various nation who people the sea coast of palestine so, in other words, y'all, it was just marrying uh, with each other. Okay? The results of these observations is that Captor was Cree. The Egyptians, Cufti, and the Philistines came from Cree. The Minoans came from Cree. The Canaanites were Phoenicians. The Phoenicians came from Canaan. Canaan and Philistia were neighboring countries. Both the Canaanites and the Philistines were immediate descendants of Ham, and the Philistines were the descendants of Masriam. However, in the Bible, Masriam means Egypt, and so the Philistines were descendants of Egypt. Don't, Arthur, you broke that down. Thus, it would appear that the Minoans, Phoenicians, Canaanites, and Philistines were pretty much One and the same people. It's already been demonstrated that the Canaanites was substantially an Egypto-Israelite nation, as has been discussed in the the book Solomon, that their descendants, the Phoenicians, may well have been descendants from Egyptian exiles. Those Hyksos Israelites... Is confirmed by the overtly Egyptian nature of their artwork. Time and time again, the artwork, motifs of the Phoenicians are demonstrably based upon Egyptian antidotes or based upon Egyptian. And I always wondered about that. You know, but as I started getting deeper into studying, it made sense. And we know that when the Israelites, when they move around, they marry into cultures and they blend. So they bring their customs into a new culture and they take on other cultures' customs. Okay. The excavation at Phoenician Carthage. For example, unearth the following trinkets. This material is undoubtedly Egyptian inspiration. The most common figuration themes are the, child know what that is, the wadget, eye, and the patah, pathichus. We also have the hawk, horus, best, and thoth. Less frequent are certain divine beings like Isis, Man, Kansu, Shu, Kanum of Amin-Ra, Sekhmet, Anubis. Okay, so I'm also noticing that that Shu, I know that carries over in the Asian culture as well. And anything with Khan in it, we know carries over to the Asian culture as well. I'm just saying, y'all. Just saying. In other words, nearly every Egyptian deity can be found within the sparse remains of the city of Carthage, okay? And uh, do a little research, Carthage also was melanated, the earliest ancient coins and stuff had melanated people on there and literally with an afro. Even Phoenician architecture is overtly based upon Egyptian styles with the typical Egyptian cornice at the top of the building being a favorite theme. These cornices were even adorned with multiple urea and the winged solar disks rendering them almost indistinguishable from the Egyptian equivalent except perhaps in the quality of their workmanship. But if the Phoenician art was based upon Egyptian style, then their language also shows great affinity to what? Hebrew. And like I said, Hebrew is a derivative of all of the languages. So you could put a Hebrew in there. Um, The... Islamic, I'm trying to pronounce it correctly, but Islamic writings, Aramics, Aramaic writings, all of that's based on cuneiform. Okay? So that's interesting that uh, then their language also shows great affinity to Hebrew. The affinity of Phoenicians with other languages of the first millennial Millennium is considerable and seems to show a strictly parallel development, particularly as far as Hebrew is concerned. The comparison between Phoenician and Hebrew does indeed show autonomy, but above all, it shows coexistence and parallel development. Uh, Again, no surprise to me. None whatsoever. All right so uh let me pause and i'll be right back all right okay all right so we talked about the phoenicians and how the phoenicians language is tied very close to hebrew uh which would make sense if they were intermarrying and all of that particular jazz okay so we're not going to read through this, but he's just giving you examples of the Egyptian uh, culture, uh, cultural things, and the Phoenician uh, interpretation of them. Uh, okay, and you know, everybody know this wing disc. Okay, and um, he's saying right here, the golden flying sun disk of Ra, the original golden bird wings of Ra, are displayed above of the doorway of the London office. Okay, all right, so that should be of no surprise to anyone. So let me just make sure I'm recording. I am. All right, so let's see where we are. We're almost done, family. Um, let's see talked about that we talked about that um talked about that i think we talked about that okay no we didn't okay so astroth uh that the phoenicians may have linked to the israelite is hardly surprising they sprang from the same geographical location as of the high cost israelites and they worship the same gods Although there were strong movements against poly, polytheism within the Judaic culture, culture, bile was still worshipped throughout the Levant and by the Phoenicians. The skill of the undercurrent of polytheism with Judaism can be glimpsed in this biblical quote from King. And the high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on the right hand of the movement of corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the... Oh, that was the original name of the Phoenicians? When the Bible is saying Ziadonians. Interesting. The ziadonians slash Phoenicians and for... Shemos, the domination of the Moabites, and for the Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon, did the king defile. Here are three pagan gods and goddesses whom King Solomon had built temples for. A list that includes Ashtoreth, which is the biblical spelling for the Phoenician mother goddess Astarte. Uh, I know I'm not proud. Astarte, I think that's it. Astarte. This is interesting. This is being made clear in the quote above because the temple of Astarte was made for the Zidonians, the inhabitants of the Leviathan city of Sidon, who were also called the Phoenicians. But the god of the Phoenicians were not only the same as the gods of the high-cost Israelites. They were, of course, also the same as the traditional Egyptian gods. Astarte is only a Phoenician version of the Egyptian Est or Isis, the mother goddess of fertility and the wife of Osiris, Asar or Osiris. Yeah, like I told y'all, I didn't learn me something new. <laughs> and learned me a lot of something new in here. This author did an absolutely wonderful job with this. All right, so I'm not going to go through this. He's just showing um, the different comparisons of the different um, goddess worship. Okay, now uh, notice uh, goddess worship. Because in that Judea, Judea Christianity faith and uh, Islamic faiths and all of that, they stripped the goddesses uh, from their faith. But those early civilizations had goddess worship, okay? So he's just showing you um, that the Minoan had a snake goddess and the Phoenician had a similar, Okay. All right, so what page is that? Uh, We left off 154. Uh, I think we did this already. Yep, we did that. Okay, let's see. So uh, bear with me. This uh, this highlight thing. Okay, let's go to this list. Yeah, I want y'all to see this list of templates. Okay, we did that, so we might be, what else? Bear with me, fam. This thing can get funny a little, uh, funny sometimes. Okay, I think we went through all of that. Okay, I think that's it. Yep, we did Isar, Asar rather, or Osiris. So I think we're good. Okay, so I'm not going to go through this entire thing. Um, I just wanted to show you the logic of this author. And uh you can certainly go through this yourself. Here's the table of contents and how he's going through each one of these civilizations and doing some comparisons and tying it all back to um these folks coming out of Africa at the end of the day. Okay. So uh, last thing I'll roll through, Uh, the Exodus timeline, this revised history of Egypt, Israelite nation has highlighted a number of exoduses to and from Egypt. The complexity of this history has probably generated an amount of confusion, and so the diagram overleap attempts to portray these migrations graphically in order to clarify the situation as much as possible. The top of the chart gives the names of the pharaohs of Egypt for each significant era, while the lower register gives the equivalent Old Testament patriarch who lived in the same era uh, shoot, I can't, sorry, y'all, I can't even blow it up, dog on that. all right, I wish I could blow it up, so ain't no need me even showing y'all that, um, I'll see, I'll kind of pretty it up for y'all to make it legible, and I'll put it in as a steel shot, so you can compare, um, these particular timelines with the exodus and the rulers, okay? So, I just thought that was uh, something interesting as well, okay? uh, So, again, he did an absolute excellent job. This is uh, Skoda, Egyptian Queen of the Scots, Egyptian Testimony Series Book 5. And uh, now, whether or not this is still true, meaning that The name Scotland in Ireland, specifically the name Scotland or the Scots came from an Egyptian queen named Skoda. I don't know. He laid out a good argument, you know, but it's mythology, according to most. He definitely laid out a good argument. Okay. Okay. It certainly intrigued me because we do know that the original bloodline of Scotland and the British Isles uh, documented history says Kenneth McAlpin, now known as McAlpine, started that rulership. Okay, now what they leave out was that he was from Africa. He was known as Kenneth McAlpine, the Niger, and it says he was from Ethiopia. Okay. All right. And it talks about here the uh, somewhere in the mix that they married into the pits. Now, whether or not the pits were originally indigenous to the land, or if they also came out of Africa, that's kind of controversial also, all right? So uh, we are gonna continue this particular series. I might even drop uh, something this week because this series, uh, Black Nobility, Bloodlines and Rulers, we're literally going through all of these different rulers and all of the different houses. Uh, and shout out to uh, Sis Brooklyn Rogie for giving me this source of information. Absolutely great information. This is from the book, The Negro Rulers of Scotland and the British Isles by Dr. John L. Johnson. Okay. Uh, so I just found this particular theory very, very interesting uh, based on what we know from, um, based on what we know from Kenneth the Niger out of Ethiopia, all right. So again, this is from Skoda, Egyptian Queen of Scots. Just giving you again. Uh, by Ralph Ellis, all right? So I don't know for sure, fam, if this is true. Uh, what I do know is that the bloodline of the black nobility, they came out of what is now known as Africa, and they brought with them their religious beliefs, political beliefs, and how to run societies. That we do know, okay? And we do know that they are tied to um, the Romans. We do know that they're tied to the, quote, quote, Israelites, which all of that still carries the same religious, political beliefs as well, and the way the societies are structured, which the foundation of that is from Egypt. So it's not far-fetched that this story is true, okay? About an Egyptian queen named Skoda is the origin for the name Scott. Right, so you do with it what you may. Uh, shout out to the sis that sent me uh, this particular information. It's well, well worth exploring. If somebody else has something to put on it, um, have you all heard of this theory before? Uh, if so, what are your thoughts on it? And do you know any more insight? So uh, I hope you got something out of this. I know this one was a long one, uh, but there you have it. (laughs) So if you are not subscribed to us, I highly encourage you to subscribe, like, and share this video. I wish everyone well on this Tuesday. This is Rhonda with WTUZ Radio Podcast. Peace and love, family.